My involvement with Boy Scouts was the reason that I am who I am. Hi, I'm Matt McKee, and welcome to Cherry Bomb, the podcast, a series of conversations with people about food, art, and sustainability. Today, I'm speaking on location at the Hampshire House with Boston hospitality legend Tom Kershaw. His Bull and Finch pub in the basement of the Hampshire House on Beacon Hill was the inspiration for the location of the classic TV show Cheers. It has become known as the world's most famous bar. If you get a chance to go online to thehampshirehouse.com, there'll be a link in the show notes, and check out Tom's bio, he's not only a restaurateur, he has also influenced or directed so much of the tourism industry in Boston and in New England and even on a national level. I would argue that he even influenced my decision to move here to Boston. This episode is sponsored by my Sweet Blast series of photographs. I created this series with the mission to start conversations in the room about the bigger topics of food, art, and sustainability. This podcast is the companion piece to that project where I get to share with you some of the discussions that Sweet Blast has inspired. You can browse and purchase images in the Sweet Blast collection at theartofmattmckee.com. First of all, Tom, thank you very much for being here. Oh, nice to meet you. Through Cheers, you are one of the reasons why I ended up moving to Boston, because as a child, my parents brought me to Boston on a tourism trip. And of course, we went to the Bullet Finch and then went to watching the shows on Cheers and always looked at the outside of the building and was like, okay, this is a place I could come and live. Oh, great. So it brought you to Boston. Absolutely. I came here for graduate school. That's how I got here. Loved it. Left and... A couple of years later, found the opportunity to come back and been here ever since. Your Bull and Finch pub here at the Hampshire House in Boston was the inspiration for the location of the classic TV show Cheers. That took place in the basement bar, and now it's the world's most famous bar. Well, back in 1968, I had gone through a series of psychological testing to see where I should be career-wise because I was not being very successful after getting an engineering degree from Swarthmore College and a Harvard Business School degree. And I knew that it was just a matter of finding something that would fit with me and my personality. These tests came back and said that my interest was a soul item, a pinnacle, an acme, hospitality. And I said, well, hospitality is what I do after 5 o'clock. I either go to a party or plan a party or go meet some people, whatever and whatever. And so I remembered a visiting lecturer at the Harvard Business School who said, when planning your career or choosing your career, if you can find something that you enjoy doing more than playing golf, you'll probably be successful. And I said, well, hospitality is my avocation. Maybe I should convert that to my vocation. I wanted to stay in Boston. This fellow said, you know, Tom, you have a lot on the ball. Why don't you just buy a place and learn by doing? Long story short, got together with a classmate from Harvard. We made a proposal to the owner of this property after learning that it was for sale. Our proposal was accepted. June 10th of 1969, we took the keys to the front door, and it's been a wonderful run for the last 52 years. Oh my gosh. Oh man. Now, what prompted you to create the Bull and Finch? Well, one of the things that we had developed was a plan for this building. What would we do? And we were going to create what we called the Executive Townhouse. 
uh, back in the 60s, uh, there were not very many concierges in the hotels. There were no business centers, but yet there are a lot of business people traveling. So we thought we could create a facility that would provide uh, the amenities that a traveling businessman would like, secretarial services, uh, copy services, uh, food and beverage, and I don't know that we really considered lodging, but that could have been one of the aspects. In the process of developing the plan of the building was to put an English pub in the basement. We looked around for some bar pieces and so forth in this country that we might use, and we couldn't really find anything, so uh, we decided to go to where the pubs are made, which is in England, contacted one joinery that said they'd be glad to build the pub, bring it over here, and install it. We did that and opened the Bull and Finch pub on December 1st, 1969. Happened to be my 31st birthday. Happy birthday to you. Oh, wow. It stood the test of time. <laughs> I was down there having dinner last night, and I was looking around at all of the excitement now that we can again operate the place as we did originally. People were enjoying themselves, they were eating, and they were talking and visiting and so forth. And I said, wow, this is unbelievable how this little room still has the magic that it had from literally day one. The concept behind cheers of the neighborhood, familiarity that people have in a place like that, uh, was that part of what you were trying to capture? Well, yeah, we expected it would be a neighborhood bar. It was just at the time when the meet-and-greet bars were being developed where young people primarily would meet other people. We figured it would be a good place for people to do that. And, of course, it exploded from there. Well, it exploded in 1981, actually 1982, when the people from Hollywood found the bar. They had just finished the series Taxi. Oh, yeah. That was a five-year show. Now, Cheers was an 11-year show, so I don't know the difference between the two, but I can tell you we're glad that the Cheers was the 11-year show. Anyway, they uh, sat around like young creative types do, and one of the fellows, Jim Burroughs, his father had a radio show in the 40s and 50s, Duffy's Tavern, where the elite meet to eat. I think that he might have said, well, fellas, why don't we try and do a, a television version of a neighborhood bar? Fortunately, they didn't call it Duffy's Tavern, but they decided Cheers would be a good name. Turns out a fabulous choice. Yeah. One of them said, I think a good idea if we could find a real bar to copy. And so Jim Burroughs, the fellow that was from the East Coast, said, well, if we're going to look for a neighborhood, we've got to go east of the Mississippi where the neighborhoods are. In fact, why don't we go to Boston? Because Boston has not only a lot of neighborhoods, they have a lot of political and sports activity mm -hmm. that would serve in the scripts. They didn't like any of the places they went to visit the first day they were here. They didn't get that warm, fuzzy feeling they were looking for. So they went back to the hotel room, which happened to be the Ritz, which at the time was around the corner and looked in the, the yellow pages. And I had, uh, with my Harvard Business School education, had learned for five hours more a month, I could list the Bull and Finch pub in bold type. Well, B being the second letter of the alphabet, we were the first 
establishment uh, listed in uh, this category. They liked the name, they liked the location. They said, why don't we go over there this afternoon and check it out? So they walked around the corner, literally, and walked into the pub and had a very pleasant time with our affable bartender, Eddie Doyle, and I went to look at five or six other places that they had identified in their search. Came back the next morning when Eddie went to the front door to open it. These two people were standing there. He said, oh, haven't I seen you folks before? He said, yeah, we're those California types that were in yesterday. Can we come in? He said, sure, I'm opening the door. They came in and they looked around and they said, this is it. This is it. Oh, my gosh. And they went to the pay phone, not the (laughs) cell phone, and called their mates in California and said, Eureka, we have found it. Oh, my gosh. That is awesome. That is awesome. I found out just how involved you are with the Boy Scouts of America. And one of the things that I always want to find out about when I'm talking with people like you is how much of these early experiences before you were out of college and things like that influenced how you made decisions, how you lived your life. My involvement with Boy Scouts was the reason that I am who I am. It was interesting. I had an older sister, 10 years older, and she was involved in Girl Scouts, and my mother was the Girl Scout leader, and I was the mascot because she couldn't leave me at home. So when we took trips down to Jersey Shore or wherever, I'd be tagging along as the mascot. So when it became time, meaning I became of age, to join uh, Cub Scouts, I immediately did that because I had been part of a scouting family. Mm-hmm. So I'll never forget, first, there's a series of badges you can gain for doing certain things in scouting, and particularly in Cub Scouts. And in the Cub Scouts, the the first badge is your parents are your judge. And there was one particular thing that I was supposed to do for the first badge, and it was to do a somersault. Well, I couldn't do a somersault. (laughs) I mean, here I am, eight years old, and I can't do a somersault. My father said, Tom, I will approve you, meaning say that you were able to do all these things, if you promise me you'll go on and earn some more badges. Mm. I went on to be a Nickel Scout. And so there was that achievement, that opportunity as a young man to focus on specific gold that being a Nigel Scout, and all of the things required to get to that point. And you also received encouragement. And in addition, I also became involved in the leadership of my pack in Cub Scouting, and then when I went into Boy Scouting, my troop. And I became the senior patrol leader. And, and so scouting, not only what you learn with the various oaths and laws and so forth, but it's an opportunity as a young person to participate in leadership of fellow people, same age people. That just started me on the path of being a leader in literally every organization I've ever been in. Scouting was very, very important. Wonderful. It still is. I've not only received the Eagle Award, but Later in my life, there was an honor developed called the Distinguished Eagle. And for those 
scouts who had gone on to do things in the community. They were given this Distinguished Eagle Award. They started an Eagle Scout Hall of Fame. I was the first inductee in the Boston chapter of that. Just recently, they named the entry or atrium into their headquarters the Thomas A. Kershaw Atrium. Congratulations on that. Well-deserved. Those honors continue to flow to me because I live the Scout Oath and Laws. Still, even to this day. I do contribute to the community and participate in it. And when the Cheers thing came along, I had the financial wherewithal to not only do that, but also to do it on a national uh, level. Now, I read in 1982, 83, something like that, you started Cheers for Children? Actually, I think it was 1980. I didn't actually start it. It was started by a couple of bartenders Uh in the pub. But I supported it from the early stages. And then I took it over when the two fellows ended up retiring or doing the other thing. What is that charity about? And basically, it started out as Globe Santa. Caught the uh, attention of these bartenders that Globe Santa provided money to families that didn't have the wherewithal to do Christmas presents or holiday presents. So they just one day decided to start to talk to their customers about throwing in a few bucks for Club Santa. And I think the first time they raised about $87. (laughs) (laughs) But it went on to the point where we had raised over a half a million dollars for Globe Santa itself over the 25 or 35 years. As soon as Cheers came along, we changed it from Globe Santa to Cheers for Children, and we broadened the number of charities, initially just four. One fellow developed an auction uh, that we would hold annually here at the Hampshire House and raise money. Uh, When I took it over, we decided to uh, do it a little differently. We have Cheers uh, beer mugs, the dimple mugs like in England, and we sell them one dollar of that goes to Cheers for Children. Oh, wow. Well, when you sell as many beer mugs as we do, that's a lot of dollars. <laughs> it adds up fast. I think we've raised over the period uh, since 1980 about $2 million. Oh, my goodness. And you were also instrumental in rebuilding the Boston Common Frog Park. It was basically creating the frog pond as it is today. I became an early supporter of the Friends of the Public Garden. I got to know the founder, Henry Lee, as a young man, and he said to me, we need to raise money to keep the holiday lights on the common. Would you figure out a way to do that? Hmm. I came up with the idea of selling little buttons. The buttons cost us 13 cents. We sell them for a dollar. That means 87 cents would go to relight the common. Okay. The first year, I remember, we raised about $40,000 to have the lights hung on the common. And we did that for about 15 years. Meanwhile, I was a skier. Had skied a lot in the east and then found the west, found Colorado and Aspen. So I started to ski in Aspen. Well, at one point, the powers-to-be built a small outdoor skating rink in Aspen in the downtown area. And it gave me a thought that maybe instead of just relying on nature to freeze the lagoon in the public garden, perhaps we could use a manufactured ice 
something a little more consistent? I initially looked at trying to do it at Public Garden. Got a great deal of pushback from that because they said, well, Tom, Public Garden's so busy in the summer, it needs the winter to rest. (laughs) So why don't you look at the common? That's a little more adorable year-round. We worked out the details and made a proposal to Mayor Menino. He had just become mayor, and he'd already identified that the common needed some attention. So when I proposed to him this skating facility, and in the summer it would be a spray pond, and in the spring and fall it would be a reflecting pond, Hmm. he said, well, we're going to build that with capital funds, but we don't want it to cost the city a dime to operate. Oh, wow, hell order. So... I thought about that for probably the whole time it was being designed and built and then finally decided the only way I could assure that was to do it myself. So I got together with some friends that knew skating and knew people who were in the skating rink business and we learned quickly what had to be done. And we took over the uh, operation of the facility once it was completed and ran it for about 14 years. And we're able to put a million dollars into the facility. We redid the restrooms. We built a skate rental place. We built an office. We built an emergency relief room, cafe, garage for the Zamboni. We sealed the pond. We did a lot. But then as would happen, rules, quote unquote, changed. And city felt obligated to go to bid for somebody to operate. Okay. Boston Skating Club bid, and of course they had a hundred years experience of running <laughs> skating rinks, and it turns out it was a wonderful thing for me, because I didn't realize how much time and attention it was taking from my management team. Ah, I see. We really weren't making any money at the project, and so all the money we made was put back into the facility. We moved on, let the skating club operate it. At what point did you meet Sidewalk Sam? I don't remember when, but I can remember that there was a significant impact in that his artwork on the sidewalk just spoke to me. A talented artist, what he would do is chalk sketches of famous people, Beethoven and others, on sidewalks throughout the city. Hmm. And it created a positive atmosphere in the city of Boston. The sidewalk Sam, down on his hands and knees, sketching out these plans for people to enjoy. Mm. And I used them several times to draw something in, on the sidewalk in front of the Hampshire House as we were doing a special event. Mm. The big thing that the sidewalk and I did was at the Frog Pond, we had lots of young people. So he said to me, Tom, why don't I come during the summer on Saturdays and set up a little drawing camp for kids? And I said, Sam, that'd be great. He did that, did that for several seasons. It was a way to get young people who were there for another reason mm-hmm. to learn a new skill. Yeah, so he would actually get them involved in creating the murals. More of crafts than painting. He had a whole program. It was terrific, and the kids just loved it. And, of course, the parents loved it, too. Mm-hmm. And then, unfortunately, Sam, one winter, had some ice build up on his roof and his gutters, went up to uh, try to break the ice jam and took a spill and basically became paralyzed. But he still would keep it going. 
He got young people to do the sketches on the sidewalk. He'd either draw a sketch and show them, or he'd lay it out for them, and then they'd fill it in. He kept it going right up to the end. Wow. He wanted to decorate a tunnel that went under what was the elevated, what is now underground, the big dig. There was a tunnel that went to the north end, and he thought it was dangerous. He thought it was dreary. Oh, I remember that tunnel set up some sketches and painted the tunnel so that it would be a pleasure to walk yeah. through. Unfortunately, none of those panels were saved, I don't think. They didn't think. survive the big dig. That's sad. But it seemed to me that he wouldn't have minded so much because it seemed like, from what I read about him, what he wanted was what was happening in the moment. It was temporary. The artwork he was creating was temporary, like the sidewalk art. Exactly, and that's the way he thought about it. Except he did do a sketch of my mother Somehow he found a picture of her and converted it to uh, the Sam look. I still have that on my wall. Very nice rendering. That's wonderful. That is wonderful. What is one thing that you wish you had known back in the day? What's one secret that you would have told yourself? There's one major thing that I would have changed, and that is my major in college. I was in the engineering program. But then at the end of your sophomore year, you chose mechanical, electrical, or civil. Father was a mechanical engineer, and all my buddies were going mechanical. Considering all the building and construction and everything else that I've done, I would have been better suited to study civil engineering than uh, mechanical engineering. Mm. Mechanical engineering ended up lots of pumps and things like that. Mm whereas civil engineering is structures. But I probably wouldn't have gotten into this field if I had. End of the day, what's your comfort food? What's your favorite meal? Favorite meal would be bluefish, mm. poached and stewed tomatoes, served with corn on the cob and sliced tomato and onion with a balsamic vinaigrette dressing. Oh, that sounds delicious, and you've got it all planned out already. <laughs> I do a Portuguese-style preparation, which I learned in Nantucket. That has been my standard special meal uh, for probably 20 years. Oh, my gosh. That's wonderful. Is there anything that you would like to bring up at this point? I think the fact that this television show chose our facilities and has given me the opportunity to be more successful in business than I had been has given me the opportunity to give even more attention to the community and to the activities involved in our industry. I was president of the Massachusetts Restaurant Association. I was chairman of the board of the National Restaurant Association. I served on the executive committee of the Travel Industry Association of America, the the National Organization of Tourism. I was the chairman of the Greater Boston Convention and Visitors Bureau for 18 years. And all of those things require the wherewithal to travel and contribute and participate. That's been a real pleasure. You know, restaurateurs, until recently, really weren't thought of very highly in terms of their skill level or commitment. The business is a tough one to make a buck. That's why the Cheers thing was such an important addition to uh, what we were able to do. Brought in a lot more visitors than uh, we would otherwise see. 
you know, it was nice to be able to accomplish all those achievements when I was a younger, more vigorous man. I'm now recognizing that getting older is not easy. <laughs> I really appreciate you listening to this episode of Cherry Bomb the Podcast, the companion piece to Sweet Blast, which can be found at theartofmattmckee.com. Today's guest is Tom Kershaw. He's an inspiring person who touched my childhood through Cheers, the Boston Frog Pond, and in so many ways through his work in the hospitality world. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did, and we'll share a link to the podcast with your friends. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, feel free to drop me a line at matt at mckeephotography.com. This episode of Jerry Bomb the Podcast is produced and edited by me with consulting help from Suzanne Schultz and Canvas Fine Arts and further editing help from Bill Shamlian at Orb Audio. Thanks for listening, and let's start the conversation.